Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new podcast series. This is the first podcast in what will hopefully be a series of podcasts focusing on sustainable cities. I'm James Ray, your host and associate in the funds and asset management team at HSF London. And I have the great privilege of speaking to Arsen Sharliski of Bankers Without Boundaries, an investment bank providing advisory and research services to governments, institutions, cities and foundations to mobilize capital for sustainable development. Welcome, Arsen. Good morning, James. Um, thanks for coming across. Um, I hope the flight was okay. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. You're welcome. So we, we, we met at the City Climate Impact Day conference in Helsingborg. Um, which was designed to bring cities, private capital, and innovators together. Uh, what was your role at the conference? How did you find it, and do you have any takeaways? So, yeah, I mean, as you said, the conference was designed to bring various stakeholders, uh, both from the pro- public and the private sector. Um, and my uh, role there was actually twofold. One was to present the investment plan concept to uh, Swedish cities who are part of a new project called Net Zero Cities. Uh, and then the other role was to present at an investor panel where you were also uh, present and listening to to discuss the challenges uh, and the opportunities to scale up capital at scale towards net zero. You have a, a long-standing um, experience in matching public institutions and private partners for sustainable development funding. For example, we spoke about a blended finance project um, in Bulgaria, combining public and private financing to improve energy efficiency and give access to renewable energy sources. What was promising about that project and what were the obstacles that you encountered there? Um, Yes, actually after 15 years uh, working within various fields of banking and finance uh, here in the city of London, um, I moved back to my home country in Bulgaria and started working at the um, Energy Efficiency Renewable Sources Fund, uh, which was set up back in 2004 uh, and it was capitalized by the World Bank, uh, by a number of regional national governments and also by um, private entities, including utilities and transport companies, etc. Um, I have to say it was quite a unique uh, setup. Uh, the purpose of the fund was to provide loans and guarantees uh, to uh, city stakeholders. And again, I stress city stakeholders because it wasn't just the city administration, uh, but also there were private uh, entities right. who wanted to uh, or who were working in the field of energy efficiency yeah. or, or renewable sources. An interesting element of the fund uh, was that it was set up as part of the Energy Efficiency Act. Mm -hmm. So if you like, the legal aspect and the governance were were an act, a national act in the country. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the fund was managed by a private consortium. So we had an operation manual, uh, there was annual meetings, board meetings, donor meetings, etc. So we had a mix of kind of the, the public element but also the private element in terms of operations right so the legislative um, element set out the governance for the fund um, but that was um, supplemented by a resource manual and an operational manual exactly it was great to hear of examples like that of cross-disciplinary input were any fund managers involved in that development well, the, the, it wasn't developed with the fund manager because uh, there was a tender to select the fund manager. Right. So a okay. number of yeah, a number of consortium partners applied, yeah. uh, and was, you know the winning one, which I was working for, uh, mm-hmm. got selected, uh, and it was based on various criteria, including 
experience in uh, in energy efficiency, renewable sources, yeah. experience in finance, uh, legal expertise. So trying to incorporate the various uh, experience required to manage the fund. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the original operating manual and the legality, it was um, developed by the Ministry of uh, Energy, I think the Ministry of Economics mm-hmm. at the time, together with external counterparts. Right. Okay, so there was a feedback um, loop there. Correct. The ability to, to partake in the creation of that. And, and what, what were some of the challenges I mean, in, in that? So you've got a private consortium, a manager, um, a private manager that's now having to adhere to a, um, a playbook and uh, sort of legislative elements that have included there um, and needs to raise money and deploy that and Correct. sort of, um, you know, it needs to be attractive both um, to investors um, and it also needs to be attractive um, to the underlying um, investments, um, those, those looking for the funding. So, so can you sort of let us know what some of the challenges were? Well, um, another piece to add maybe in terms of the operation of the fund is that mm. each investment decision uh, or credit decision, as we used to, to say in banks or, or investment funds, yeah. um, had people both from the pu- private but also from the public sector. Yeah. Um, so the KPIs that were developed were both... Uh, social, environmental, as well as financial, and we know the private sector is a lot more concerned with financial returns as opposed to the public sector that is more concerned by social returns. Yeah. So, in all the decisions uh, that were being taken to provide loans or guarantees to stakeholders, uh, we had to address both of these challenges. Yeah, that's really and, interesting. Uh, I mean, and, yeah, and 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 we were monitoring. Uh, so, for example, the energy savings mm. uh, on an annual basis, and we had to report this to uh, to the ministries and to the World Bank and to all the donors that had provided capital. The challenge uh, that um, the fund encountered, especially after 2007, is when the country joined the European Union and there was significant flow of uh, grant funding from the EU which crowded out private capital. Yeah. Uh, and that created a huge challenge. Um, like crowding out as a result of the fact that it's just simply cheaper to get to take the grant money and sort of avoid. It's free. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not cheaper. It's, <laughs> it, well, I mean, it's free in the sense it's free from a, from an interest rate or from a capital perspective. Yes. It's yeah. not free in terms of uh, you know the administration that you have to go through. Yeah. It's just that, that criteria is slightly different right. uh, when it comes to sourcing public funding, as I would like to call it, and sourcing private capital. Uh, But it was a very interesting challenge we, you know, with all the fund faced uh, because you just couldn't compete uh, in that sense. Well, you just mentioned blended financing, and I know this is a question that we spoke about earlier, and it's a difficult one to answer. But what what do you think we need to make blended financing a success? How do we stop... Um, public funding, cannibalizing private funding? How do we ensure that we can manage both non-financial KPIs and financial KPIs in the same context? Um, How do we make a PPP success? I think it's a a tricky question. I mean, we've seen a lot of examples worldwide of um, public-private partnerships fail. Uh, However, we've also seen some projects uh, that have been developed uh, as through a PPP type structure 
Um, I think for me, um, the, uh, a crucial element is to clearly define the roles and responsibilities of all the stakeholders that are involved mm-hmm. uh, in the operation and the management of the of, of a fund, mm-hmm. um, so that there's no uh, misalignment in expectations. Um, I think also it's you know clearly it's a matter of, of trust uh, between both the, the public and the private sector. Um, I think the legal and the governance, the legal aspect and the governance needs to be clearly uh, laid out mm-hmm. uh, so that it's, you know, it's, it manages the operation of the fund well. Um, the, you know, we refer to the, to the Bulgarian Front, I think one of the um, difficulties uh, and the reasons it didn't scale up as quickly or as much as it could have is because the, private, uh, sorry, the public sector got a lot more involved uh, into the management of the fund which created some challenges and some traction in the operation of the fund. Right. And, and finding that right balance between achieving social and environmental uh, results, but also financial results, is, you know, is the, um, the nitty gritty and, and will, will solve the, the challenge. So we'll come to the net zero cities topic in a second, but I just want to circle us back to um, your experience with privately funded projects um, where sort of a different kind of problem has arisen. Um, and I, I'm specifically referring to our discussion earlier on the e- EBRD project. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and why you think that these kinds of projects are where perhaps the public element is actually useful? Yes, yeah, so after after I worked for a few years at the, at the Bulgarian Fund, uh, which was a PPP structure, then I moved to a purely privately uh, financed uh, facility, which is called Labif, uh, and it focuses on renovation of uh, primarily residential buildings, but also public buildings. Uh, and the renovation of, the re- of residential buildings, we know it's it's very challenging uh, segment for, for a number of reasons. I think what was interesting is that whilst the decision-making process and to a large extent the KPIs uh, were easier to manage and structure, uh, the challenge that uh, we encountered at the time is that the, especially when it comes to to residents as stakeholders, they would have liked to deal with the public sector. So the, the the facing of the public sector was missing uh, to to create this uh, additional element of trust, if you like. Uh, so it, it was kind of interesting when the original structure is a PPP and you have the public and the private uh, stakeholders uh, married together trying mm. to develop something. You have uh, challenges in the uh, in the marriage or in, the, in in making the relationship work. But then, if you ha- if you adjust uh, the private sector, then you miss the other side of the coin to face some of the stakeholders yeah. uh, and and deploy capital. Yeah, it creates some legitimacy and exactly exactly that that was that was the challenge that that we encountered. Well, I mean, we were together at the City Climate uh, Climate Impact Day conference um, and. There, you spoke on the investor panel, and you and you spoke about the um, investment plan as a concept, as well as um, climate city contracts. Um, and before we speak about that, I mean, I think that from the outside, the city's approach to climate neutrality may sometimes appear short term and and limited to individual topics. And the question is, what can help to make cities? 
private partners and city stakeholders better understand which actions and financial resources are required from a broader perspective um, and how basically to speak the same language. It would be great to hear more on the climate investment plan and how you're looking to develop this further. I should say that investment plan, uh, the way we are looking to develop with cities has not been done before or I've not come across certainly out there. Right. Um, many cities are used to developing action plans but not investment plans. Right. Uh, and, and what's the distinction there between an action plan and an investment plan? So the action plan is very much focused on the actions. Uh, it is a long-term planning exercise, both from a from an impact, cost, and a capital perspective. So here we're talking about seven, ten years. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I think that we were speaking um, on this topic um, to some extent, and I, I don't think I really made the link, but. Um, cities are geared towards plans, action plans, because that requires city spending um, and budget spending and budgeting, and that's, that comes down to the capital cost, um, but not much thought put necessarily into how does that cost work towards an investment, how, how does it, you know, how, how do you attract other players, and, 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 and how do you ensure sort of a stakeholder success um, from a financial KPI perspective. Um, and yeah. I mean, more, all these elements generally have been developed in silos. Yes. So what we are looking to do here is to bring everything under a yeah. single umbrella. Uh, and then as a continuation of, uh, of this would be then to uh, look at portfolio or single projects, if they're large enough, where we start the implementation of those plans. Um, one thing I should say, which I'm sure will be very relevant for, for you, um, so the investment plan that is being developed together with the action plan uh, form crucial elements of a climate city contract. Mm -hmm. uh, and the climate city contract as a, as a concept was first developed by a number of, of Swedish cities uh, together with some of the partners uh, within the project. And the whole objective is that within the contract, you have a set of commitments. It's a non-legally binding document, mm -hmm. just to be absolutely clear yeah. at the moment. Uh, but within the contract, you have a list of commitments that the signatories, the first one being the mayor. Uh, so within this contract, you have the commitments. Then you have uh, an outlay of the actions together with the achieved impact. And the third element, which is where BWB is very much focused on, is the, this investment plan, which covers both the uh, economic case, which will be the impact and the cost, mm -hmm. and the financial case. So how are we going to source optimally at scale capital, both public and private? Yeah, and I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I think that it's an attempt to get cities pushing them away from their annualized budgeting and, and planning and towards a, a long-term goal that's at least not too risky from a from a sort of political perspective and in in, in the sense that it's non-binding i mean in in, in doing so um once we've managed to clarify um the actions and the resources required um how do we choose the right financing structure i mean traditionally cities are financed by private lending municipal bonds um, for example um, and and also limited by the city's budgets um will this be enough um, I, I think we've we've touched on it, but I'm, I mean, what what will it take us to to, to get to net zero? Uh, it's it's I, I I'm going to prelude and say I assume a city's budget is not enough. <laughs> no, uh, by all means, it's not enough. Uh, I mean, we were looking at um, at the requirements. So just to just to put things into perspective, for example, the Juncker plan uh, 
and I'm sorry if I miss a zero, but you have to excuse me. I I work in finance, and <laughs> we're not very we're not very good at numbers sometimes. But for example, the Juncker plan uh, was half a billion, and I think that was over over ten years. Yeah. We at the a uh, hundred cities we estimated. Oh, sorry, at all the cities which cover about seventy percent of the population, uh, about fourteen trillion is required. Mm. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, public funding is is uh, is only a drop unless we want to pay taxes three, four, five times at yeah. least at the moment. Uh, the need for private capital is clear. The, you know, we cannot get there without um, incentivizing or sourcing private capital. Now, how we find the right balance of uh, spending public funding now, which is in essence, you know, tax. Uh, tax receipts, but also sourcing uh, private capital, in particular pension funds, who mm-hmm. have longer term liabilities and matching those liabilities with the cash flow of the assets uh, that we're going to um, upgrade or develop to make this transition uh, is something we, we all need to work on. Yeah. I mean, well, considering the private equity industry has, what, two, three trillion worth of dry powder, I'm sure there's a, a couple of investors out there that wouldn't mind seeing their funds deployed somewhere. Yes. Um, yes. And, and I, yeah. I, I think on the, on the private investment side, the challenge is that, that a lot of these funds, and I've spoken to quite a few of them over the past couple of weeks, is that they want to deploy quickly and they look at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, on the contrary, when it comes to some of these projects uh, and you look at the ticket size, uh, they are slightly below the threshold that most of these large funds have. That's um, a bit ironic, isn't it? It yeah, is. Yeah. It is. It, it's, it, if it's too small, then you usually can find uh, capital either through banks or smaller tailored funds. Uh, and if it's too big, you can also get capital. But if it sits in the middle, uh, it, it's, it's just uh, finding it difficult. Uh, a lot of projects, I mean, I've been involved in some projects where um, some investors had to carve out uh, some pool of resources from their mandate so that they can uh, deploy the capital with the expectation there will be um, a pipeline coming. Yeah, and I mean that pipeline is probably what's quite interesting from a from a legal toolbox perspective. Um, I think that um, the way that private equity st- funds are structured and, and infrastructure funds are structured with a specific goal in mind. And ultimately they fit in one part of the pipeline. And the one thing that's difficult on a private-public partnership that we've noticed is that um, there there is sort of a, a need to consider the entire pipeline rather than a simple element of that um, in order for the relationship to work in the long run. Um, and uh, we spoke about it earlier, but um, there's a, also the problem of balancing the non-financial and financial KPIs. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the tension in the marriage that you referenced earlier um, between government and, and the private sector. And ultimately, um, well, we think that um, we've sort of summarized here that uh, good governance structures and the, the ability to, to, to pool resources in a clearly defined way is probably the best way forward. Um, and I, I would like to, to know what you think, but I mean, I perhaps we, we've thought about the idea of a mega fund before, and I haven't actually mentioned that to you yet, but simply a fund that has revolving doors where different investors come in at different points um, to sort of fit a certain risk profile. 
um, and then exit with the idea that we could use, for example, the legislative framework um, used in Bulgaria mm-hmm. as a as a, an overarching mm-hmm. umbrella um, to keep it legitimized. Um, I, I mean, I, I do think this uh, is something that should be explored further. Um, having the, the the framework of of, of the fund uh, and then having different um, investors coming in uh, and taking a or allocating capital to the risk they're willing to see yeah. right I mean that's the that's the base of finance uh, yeah. it's about risk and return um, I, I I perhaps it can work at a national level I'm not sure whether you can it can work uh, at a European level I'm just thinking yeah based on the on the project that uh, we are working on mm-hmm. um, and there are also various elements um, now one interesting pilot is being developed here in the UK actually uh, is the GNDF which is managed by Amber where they are looking to provide grants equity and debt yeah mixed blended financing mixed bl- exactly <laughs> means blended finance right so yeah. so it can be done uh, and I think we'll, we'll see more and more of that yeah um, We'll see more of blended finance. We'll see more of various indicators and KPIs, as you mentioned, which will include a social and environmental element. Yeah. Um, you know, something we, we touched upon early in terms of having that within a mandate yeah. for investors. Yeah, uh, I sort think of. We'll definitely see more of that. I think, I mean, the, the, the more we can define the investment mandate, the, the, the more likely we are able to sort of delineate between the, the, the conflicts that might exist um, between our non-financial KPIs and our financial KPIs and how to deal with those conflicts of interest it makes sense to sort of have to the furthest extent possible while whilst maintaining the flexibility where, where you can um, having that defined beforehand to avoid any sort of um, upsets in the marriage yes <laughs> yes 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 no 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 I, I, absolutely and, and uh, you know uh, also I think your remuneration will be linked to this element and we talk about always talk about it when it comes to the private sector the quantitative indicators for KPIs or financial returns but I think there will be an element of uh, of qualitative indicators so yeah and, and I mean it's, it's going to have to be um, and uh, yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the um, climate investment plan works out as well as the um, climate city contracts um, and I thank you so much for taking um, some time to, to discuss I wish we could spend another half an hour talking about it there's so many things that we could cover um, but thank you very much thank you James thank Appreciate you it.